They uh, keep me on the night shift. Uh, all those years of working with teenagers and then now with the evening service. Uh, boy, it was tough getting up for this morning worship service. <laughs> I am so excited about this passage this morning. Uh, a few years back, there was a black pastor who went to a uh, pastor's conference and the emphasis was on studying the Word of God, that they would uh, drink deeply of the Word, study it and then present it to the people that they uh, worshiped with. And he uh, got up at the end of that week and he said, the Lord has rung my bell this week. The Lord has lit a fire in my heart, he said. And he says, if the Lord has not rung your bell, it's because your clapper is broke. And if your fire isn't lit, your wood is wet. And as I uh, thought through that, those, those dear words of that man, I thought, you know, as I study this passage, I hope, and my prayer has been this week, that that is exactly what would happen to us, that our bells would get rung, that our hearts would be lit afire. Also, I want to encourage you men uh, and sons and daughters that are here today, because it is such a special Mother's Day. My wife shared a, a new definition of the word sensuous, and so you ladies can go home and try this on your husbands. You can tell them, honey, you are so sensuous, and since you was up, why don't you get me another bowl of ice cream? <laughs> We need, we, we really do need to serve our wives, our moms, not just today, but really, uh, students, uh, college students, uh, little ones out there, uh, love your mom. Boy, what, what a wonderful blessing they are. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. What a wonderful section, uh, that this, uh, letter of Paul's to the Ephesians, it, how it, it excites our hearts. Last summer, my oldest son, Joshua, who was home from college, decided to rebuild his uh, truck engine. And with the uh, help and aid of our resident, Gary Lett, many of you know Gary from, from uh, Cole here, one of our neighbors, he helped us get down, you know, elbow deep into grease and oil and nuts and bolts and cams and crankshafts and pistons and rings. And we went about to uh, rebuild Josh's engine. Uh, and we can honestly say that after having completed uh, that engine, we knew, uh, really, with confidence, uh, how that internal combustion engine worked. We understood the power source for which drives that automobile. But now, think about this. If, if I was to get into that truck and sit behind the steering wheel, and because I know all about that engine, I order it to take me to work... What's going to happen? Absolutely nothing, right? Not a thing. Because it doesn't matter how much I know about that engine, I've got to put the key in the ignition. I've got to take the knowledge that I have and put it to use. I've got to appropriate what I know. Now, what we've been told, and as Paul, and, uh, Paul as Chris and David have been teaching over the last uh, few months on this uh, book, the first three chapters of Ephesians tells us what? Who you and I are in Christ. The power plant, the resources, the spiritual blessings that God gives us. I think it was Chris Riddell years ago, and I don't know if Chris came up with this uh, statement, but it rings so true. If you are in Christ, everything that is true of Christ is true for who? You and me. We've got this incredible power plant. But you see, it doesn't do any good to have all that knowledge, to know everything that, that, that Paul tells us in chapters 1 through 3 if we don't appropriate it. Now, what has Paul told us about ourselves in, in chapter 1? 
Well, he tells us that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That we were bought, redeemed with the blood of Christ. Then he goes on to tell us that we've been marked and that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. The Spirit of God puts the life of God into the soul of every man, woman, and child that invites Christ into their life. Wonderful, great theology. And Paul wants us to understand this. He wants us to know this. Then in chapter 2, he tells us what we used to be. It's always good to be reminded where you've been, right? The pit from which Christ has got us up out of. He said, once we were transgressors, we sinned against God. We were strangers. We were aliens. We were without hope. We were spiritual walking zombies. We were spiritually dead, folks. But fortunately, he didn't leave off there. In chapter 2, he says, in Christ, you have a newness of life, a resurrectedness in life. He goes on to tell us in chapter 2 that we are being built together, both Greek and Jew, formed into one mysterious church, a body in which Christ can reside. Now what's going to happen next week is we're going to to begin chapters 4 through 6. And in 4 through 6, Paul describes for us, okay, now you know who you are in Christ, now I'm going to tell you where to go with what you know. In other words, he gives us a road map of what we can do, where to go in life, how to behave, what should be our response in, in difficult times. But it doesn't do any good, does it, to know everything in chapters 1 through 3, who you are in Christ. It doesn't do anything any good to know where you're going to go in life in Christ if you don't appropriate it, if you don't put the ignition key in and turn it on, if you don't make use of what you know. And I believe that's why Paul has this Packaged little prayer. Eight verses for us in 14 through 21. A powerful, bold, exciting prayer on getting turned on, so to speak. Using the power source. Now this isn't the first prayer in the book of Ephesians, is it? The first prayer took place in chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. In other words, Paul prays for enlightenment. But now in chapter 3, he says, you know it all. Now I'm going to pray for enablement. That you take the power source and that you use it. That you're driven by it. That God is the source of that power. He is the one that strengthens us. You know, all of us that have been Christians for any length of time can think of other Christians in our lives that never have gotten to verse 20. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or dream or think according to the power that works within us. We've all had brothers and sisters out there that just don't seem to understand what the power source is or how to get it moving in the right direction. In just a couple of weeks, the Indianapolis 500 is going to be raced. Have you ever stopped and thought about this? That official starter, he stands up there year after year, and what does he tell those men? Men, gentlemen, start your engines. Now, every driver knows you can't run a race without starting that thing up. they got to put the key in the ignition. they got to crank it on. they got to get going. And I believe what Paul's doing here is he is saying to the believer, folks, you are new creatures in Christ. You've got all the power resources you need to live dynamic, victorious lives. 
let's get going in the race. Let's get the engines running. I ran across this quote last week. I think it fits well with this passage. The Christian life or the Christian experience is a matter of applying God's power to everyday living. See, if we just hear it and never apply it, we're not learning anything, are we? We just as well be spiritually dead. Now, as I read through the passage, I want you to uh, track with me here. I think there's three things uh, that God, uh, that Paul wants God to grant to the believer. And uh, what the what Paul has done here is used a little Greek phrase. It's what is called a hina clause. It means it's, it's a purpose. Grammarians call it a purpose result clause. And in most translations that do an accurate job of, of, of uh, translating this, it, it is translated as so that or in order that. So what Paul has in mind here is a progression. He is going to pray that God will grant us three things. He's going to pray, one, that God will grant us such and such so that, in order that, you and I might result in becoming like whatever. He prays that he might grant something to us so that we will be strengthened with power. So read with me, and I'll insert these just to make sure that uh, you all uh, can track with... uh, Because I know in some translations they do not uh, clearly translate it this way. Paul begins in verse 14 by saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So that, there is the first little clause, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being, and by the way there's in there so that there, in order that you being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend, to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that, or in order that, you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen, or so be it. Now, Paul begins in verse 14 by saying, for this reason. And Chris explained to us last week that that takes us back to verse 1. We need to ask the question, for what reason? Uh, For what purpose? For what cause, Paul? You go back to chapter, the beginning of chapter 3 and verse 1, and Paul starts out the same way. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. That's where he was originally going to start this wonderful, powerful prayer But something happens. You know, he's like a lot of us. Something triggers in his mind and he thinks, no, I've got to give some more good theology here. So he goes on to explain just the mystery of Gentiles and Jews being bonded together in the church in Christ. But the, uh, for this reason, really refers back to, uh, to verse 22 of chapter 2. I'm going to read from the NIV. I really like the way it reads. It says, in him, that is Christ, You are being built together, and I believe he's talking there about Jews and Gentiles, uncircumcised as well as circumcised. You are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. In other words, I believe what Paul is simply saying is the believer is the habitation place for the Spirit of God. The God of the universe puts his life into you and me. And it's, because, and it's because Paul understands that we have all this tremendous resource and power 
and that these new Gentiles have been incorporated into the body of Christ, that he prays that not only would we understand it, but we would appropriate now the power that we have. It's really amazing, isn't it? Pretty fantastic concept that God puts himself in this lump of clay, in your lump of clay. And he wants us not to put around in a little four-cylinder, you know, foreign-made job. He wants us to be a supercharged, turbo-boosted, eight-cylinder Christian running with full strength and power. Now, notice that he says that he bows his knees before the Father. Uh, Paul, in, in other prayers, matter of fact, in, a, in the first chapter, does not refer to any kind of p- uh, prayer position. But for some reason, he does here. Now, standing was the more normal posture for the Jews of that day, but bowing one's knee was not uncommon, was not uh, not as practiced. But Eusebius, uh, a church father, tells us that it referred, the bowing of the knee or, the, or, or kneeling was a familiar custom of the New Testament Christians. They uh, took that practice and seemed to really put it into place far more than the Jews did. And the, the kneeling or bowing uh, suggests to us something that's symbolic of uh, submissiveness, solemnity, adoration. Solomon did it in First Kings at the dedication of the temple. Stephen, when he was martyred and stoned, did it uh, in Acts, I believe Acts 7. He knelt down during that, that stoning. Jesus himself in Luke uh, 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane bowed his knees before the Father. A couple of years ago when we took the high schoolers to Mexico, we went into a little barrio, a little village. Uh, the church's name was Fountain of Living Water. Let me tell you folks, they were alive. I went up to the pastor and I was uh, teaching that evening and I said, uh, how much time do I have? He says, time? <laughs> you got all the time in the world. I mean, their services go two, two and a half hours, three hours. And the thing that impressed me was that when they were standing and singing, even when I was up teaching, people would, not trying to draw attention to themselves, but they'd come up and they would kneel down at the the front of these steps. And they'd begin to pray quietly for the people in their body, you know, for those that were there that were unsaved, for myself who was teaching. I often thought, boy, wouldn't it be be neat to get the elders, you know, get the elders, we're going to talk about elders right now, get the elders to to get a place in the back there where we could discreetly go back there and, uh, you know, carpet that, that rug for those of us that got bad knees and, and uh, just to s- quietly slip out and go in the back and get down on our knees to pray. I was talking with Judy Mechanic here a couple of weeks ago and she turned me on to a great little book, Evangelical is Not Enough. And basically what he says is, you know, we, we evangelicals sometimes, we came out of Catholic uh, churches or, or Lutheran backgrounds. We've kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, we sit to do everything. We sit to eat. We sit to, to watch TV. We sit in our cars. Nothing fancy about sitting. And the point that he makes is that, you know, some of the things that they do in, in those other those other churches, even though we look at those as rituals, there's there's some value to that. Now, I'm not saying that it's more important to kneel than to sit or to be upside down or whatever. But uh, Paul wants us to know that he bowed his knees before his father. And notice that he uses the term father here. You know, Paul's about to pray and ask for some awfully mighty, powerful, wonderful things. Had it been me praying, I probably would have addressed God as Almighty God. 
king of kings, sovereign lord, master. But Paul chooses the word father because it emphasizes, I believe, God's acceptance of us when we come into his presence. It's no different. Moms, is it? When you, you know, your kids come home from school and they run up, mommy, mommy, and they jump in your lap and you cuddle them and it's warm. Dads, you know the experience also. You sit down in your chair and they jump in your lap and you embrace them and you hold them and you love them. And that's what Paul has in mind here. You see, God is not some cold, distant, indifferent, unloving deity, but we go to him and he's tender. He's compassionate. He's concerned about our needs. He's an accepting father who literally waits, I believe, with anticipation in his heart for the moment we enter his praise. Whether your position is kneeling, standing, sitting, whatever, uh, he is waiting to embrace you. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity of reading one of Brendan Manning's works, and he talks about this idea. I think he really captures for me, and I believe for you as I read this, what prayer is and how we can boldly go to, to our Father and enter into his presence. Uh, Brennan says that uh, there was this man, who, an older gentleman, who was dying of cancer. The old man's daughter had requested that the, the priest would come and, and pray with her father. When the priest arrived, he, he said to the old man, Oh, you must have been expecting me. The old man replied, No, who are you? Well, I'm the new associate at your parish, the priest said. When I saw the empty chair, I figured you knew I was going to show up. Oh, yeah, the chair, said the bedridden man. Would you mind closing the door? Puzzled, the priest shut the door. I've never told anyone this, not even my daughter, said the man, but all my life I have never known how to pray. At the Sunday Mass, I used, I used to hear the pastor talk about prayer, but it always went right over my head. Finally, I said to him one day in sheer frustration, I get nothing out of your homilies on prayer. Here, says my pastor, reaching to the bottom drawer of his desk, read this book. It's the, by a Swiss theologian. It's the best book on contemplative prayer in the 20th century. Well, Father, says the man, I took the book home and I tried to read it. Put in the first three pages, I had to look up 12 words in the dictionary. I gave the book back to my pastor, thanked him, and under my breath whispered, for nothing. I abandoned any attempt at prayer, he continued, until one day, about four years ago, my best friend said to me, Joe, prayer is just a simple matter of having a conversation with Jesus. Here's what I suggest. Sit down on a chair, place an empty chair in front of you, and in faith... See the face of Jesus. See Jesus in that chair. It's not spooky because he promised, I'll be with you always. Then just speak to him and listen in the same way you're doing with me right now. So Padre, I tried it and I've liked it so much that I do it a couple of hours every day. I'm careful though, if my daughter saw me talking to an empty chair, she'd either have me locked up and sent to a funny farm or think that I had a nervous breakdown. The priest was deeply moved by the story and encouraged the old guy to continue on the journey. Then he prayed with him, anointed him with oil, and returned to the rectory. Two nights later, the daughter called to tell the priest that her daddy had died that afternoon. Did he seem to die in peace? He said, yes, when I left the house around two o'clock. He called me over by his bedside, told me one of his corny jokes, and kissed me on the cheek. When I got back from the store an hour later, I found him dead. But there was something strange, Father. In fact, beyond strange, kind of weird. Apparently, just before Daddy died, he leaned over. 
and he rested his hair head on that chair. Hmm. See this old timer and Brandon Manning as well as Paul seem to understand what it's like to to lay your head on your master's knees on his lap. And Paul doesn't enter into the God into God's presence fearfully, does he? But he boldly goes in because he understands the resources, the power, the spiritual blessings. They're just waiting there to be given out to his children. And that's why Paul says that he, he prays that uh, God will grant to these believers according to the riches of his glory. Now Paul makes his first petition, notice in verse 16. He says, so that he, God, would grant to you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The first thing that Paul wants us to uh, receive from God is that our inner man be strengthened. Uh, There's got to be a change going on in the inner woman, in the inner man. Now, I think to really dig into this, we need to ask ourselves, what exactly is Paul referring to when he says the inner man? Well, I believe to keep it really simple is it's our, it's our inner person. It's what is really you, what is really me. It's our spiritual person. Uh, maybe it would be best to contrast it with our outer man, because Paul does speak at length about our outer man. This morning when you got up to come to church, you took good care of your outer man. You bathed it, you showered it, you combed the hair, you ate, you brushed your teeth, you got dressed. Thank goodness. And you came to church. Uh, you took good care of your outer man. Women, you put on your face. Men, we took it off. <laughs> Most of us, some of us try to take more off than we planned. So physical exercise, taking care of the body is okay. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 4.8, for bodily discipline or exercise is okay, it, but it only profits a little, Paul says. But godliness, that spiritual man, that spiritual woman is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life as well as the life to come. And as Jesus put it in John 6, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Now think about how much time and energy we put on our outer man, quite a bit, don't we? Well, Paul's emphasis here in this prayer is for the spiritual man. As 2 Corinthians says that, uh, the outer man is dying, decaying. It's wasting away all the time. And boy, for those of us that are gaining on you know, the other age curve, we really see that. But Paul goes on to say the inner man is being renewed daily. That's where his emphasis is. That's where his preoccupation is. And I believe that's where our preoccupation should be as well. To pray for the inner man. Now, notice that Paul's request is that the inner man be strengthened with what? Power. Now, the verbal form of the word strengthen is the opposite of the the word to be discouraged or to lose heart. Matter of fact, those words are used in verse 13 where Paul says, Therefore I ask, don't don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. This, This idea of to be strengthened was a common term found in the Septuagint. It's used some four times here in the New Testament. 
And the idea, Paul's point, is that we not become discouraged or lose heart with all that life is going to throw at us, but that our inner man, our inner woman, becomes strengthened with power so that we can stand up under anything that comes our way. And this strength for living out the Christian life comes by the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. That's our source. That's where we get our strength. And just what is it that the Holy Spirit brings to us? He says power. Dunamis. It's the, uh, the Greek word from which we get our English word for what? Dynamite. Many of you know that I spent uh, quite a few years in Montana as a miner, and uh, it gave me a tremendous appreciation and respect for dynamite. Uh, I had an older partner, Jack Price, who uh, golly, taught me so many, not only lessons about life, but how to keep my life safe underground and in bad ground. We were drift miners. We would tunnel through the mountain with the ore bed just above us. A, a drift was a arch-shaped a tunnel. We were some two miles underground. We went in the mountain rather than down the mountain, as the Butte miners did. And uh, we would drill out around with approximately 40 holes uh, per day. Uh, drift was about 10 feet wide by about eight and a half, nine feet tall, just enough to get a couple of tracks down the middle of that and run an ore car back and forth and to, to beat a, a track through that mountain. We got into some bad ground, what was called a wash. A wash is uh, nothing more than the, the ore bed had shifted one way or the other. Uh, my way of looking at it is in God's creation. He decided to jumble it up just to make life a little bit more interesting for miners. And, uh, well, you just totally lose the ore. You have no idea where it went to. And so you have to be really careful because the ground gets really unstable. You're timbering every day. Well... We, we, we drilled out around in this wash, uh, thinking that it would, uh, the, the explosion would react just as it had done for all the years and days in the past that we had, had, had drilled into this mountain. Uh, and so at the end of that day, uh, we went back a few hundred yards in the drift and, uh, just to listen to our round go off. So we would know what to expect the next morning. Typically, you would drill four holes in the center parallel to one another and then a, a burn hole in the middle and you'd leave it empty no no powder you wouldn't put any dynamite in that and then you would those would be the first four holes to go boom and then all these other holes would blast and they would boy you just need a beautifully arched you know hard rock mining it uh, just go in there and muck it out and and away you go but we went back and and, and all all of a sudden we were waiting and and the explosion went off and our hard hats literally folks they you know, did one of these on our head with a concussion. And we were a long ways from the heading, the head of that drift. And I looked at Jack and I said, Jack, did you hear more than one shot? He said, well, I was hoping you'd, you'd heard more than one. And we knew we were in trouble. You see, dynamite acts on concussion. They have a little blasting cap and that little stick of powder. And that concussion is what sets off the other holes. In a wash, there was seams, there was mud, there was clay, there was water. And what we didn't realize is when we drilled in, there was enough seams and cracks that all 40 holes were basically connected. So when that burn went off, the concussion set off all 40 holes. Tremendous amount of power. We got in the next day, and there's a two and a half ton mucker that sits on rails. It's a hydraulic piece of equipment. 
and it will muck up dirt and rocks like you cannot believe. Throw away that shovel, boys, because this thing really gets to moving. But that mucker, the, the explosion had picked the mucker up, turned it around facing the other way in the drift, and blew it back down the tracks about 100 feet and set it off the track. Two and a half tons of steel. It blew down pipeline. It blew down our air supply. It covered, It looked like somebody had gone there and decorated it with mud splatches all over the drift. I tell you this little story, kind of simple, but just to help you understand the power that Paul is getting at here in the use of the word dynamite. It's, it's not by any accident that he chooses this word. And, and, and folks, you and I have the indwelling spirit of God in us that has that kind of power. But you say, Dennis, I, I've known the Lord for many years. I'm just not a very dynamic Christian. Dennis, I, I barely fizzle, <laughs> let bang, you know, uh, explode. What, what, what do I need to do? What, what's going on here? Well, let me suggest to you that that's why Paul is making this prayer, that we need to bow our knees. We need to get down and we need to ask that our inner man, our inner woman be strengthened. Because really, behind what's going on here, the Spirit has got to be the one strengthening us. Now, there is something you and I can do. The second thing I would suggest is that you and I begin to exercise the will, our will, that we appropriate what we know. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we feed our spiritual, our inner person. St. John of the Cross wrote in his book, Dark Night of the Soul, he describes what it's like when we first come to Christ. He says that you and I are spiritual babies. He calls them beginners back in the 13th century. And he says what happens is mothers take care of those little infants. They cuddle them, they nurse them, they, they're tender, they clothe them, they bathe them. And that's what happens when we come to Christ. We are spiritual babes. But just as a mother eventually has to teach that little one to crawl on its own, to walk on its own, to feed himself, St. John of the Cross says that's what happens to us spiritually. We need to exercise our will to start feeding ourselves because that's what strengthens the inner man, the inner woman. I liken it to exercise, physical exercise. Some of you are into that. And... Uh, you run, you jog, you uh, walk, you pump iron, uh, whatever. And you know that if you continue that with some consistency, some regularity, the, the body, the muscles get stronger. I've tried it, but all I'm doing is trying to fight the battle of atrophy at this point, you know. But the inner man is the same way. If you and I study deep down into God's Word, if we, if we pursue God... If we bend our will, yield our will to the Spirit's will, we get stronger, don't we, in our spiritual person. You study God's Word and temptation comes along, you resist it because you've been in the Word, you get stronger. That doesn't mean you're always going to resist it. Positionally, though, we are perfect, sinless in Christ. As God looks at Dennis, he sees me perfect in Christ. Boy, I struggle with the same battles you do, folks, every day. I wrestle with those things. My inner man has got to be strengthened. Unfortunately, there's been times in my life I've dove God's Word and started to drink it deeply, but I gargled it and spit it out. And uh, then I don't begin to fully comprehend what Paul gets at here in verse 20.
But we do. We hold in our hands, folks, a, a wonderful, great revelation of God. And, and with that privilege comes responsibility, and that responsibility is to drink it in deeply. Don't just gargle it and spit it out, but to eat of it. Jeremiah 15 says, Thy words were found, and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. Psalm 1 says, But his delight, a righteous man's delight, is in the law of the Lord. And in that law he meditates day and night. And notice what happens if he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. So I encourage you to pray and feed on the word. Now Paul tells us that this this strengthening in verse 17 is so that Christ may dwell in your heart and in my heart through faith. In other words, we are strengthened in our inner man, or as we are strengthened in our inner man, we yield our will to the Spirit's will. And the idea is that that Christ takes up residence in our hearts. Now, there are two similar Greek verbs that describe what Paul means when he when he uses the word to dwell. The first one is a is a weaker verb that uh, gives the idea of inhabiting a place just temporarily, to inhabit as a stranger. Matter of fact, Paul uses the noun form back in chapter two, verse nineteen, when he when he says we were once once strangers, sojourners, we were aliens. That's what th- that word has the idea of. Chris Riddell and I were talking this past week, and he said it's it's like going to the Motel 6, you take up residence just for the night. You're a stranger there. It's not your home. You know, you uh, you jump out of bed, you take a shower, you don't care where the towel ends up. You don't have to pick it up. You know, you eat your Twinkie breakfast, you leave the wrapper on the table, and boom, you're out the door and gone. Because it's just a temporary place. But the word that Paul uses here for dwell is more the idea of a permanent residence. Someone who settles down at home. What do you ladies do when you settle down in a home? How you decorate it. How you put pictures of kids on the wall and you have plants in there and all the, you know, and husbands, you have your favorite sofa or your bean bag or whatever you, you snuggle down in. Because it's your home, you make residence there. That's the idea is that as, as your inner man and woman gets strengthened, you will yield your will to the Spirit so Christ settles down He becomes comfortable, all right? Your house, your body, then you turn it over to him for his home, his temple, so that he takes up residence, that he calls the shots. And that leads us to the second gift that Paul prays for us in in 17b, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And then notice the second half of that verse, in order that, or so that, being rooted and grounded in love. Paul wants us to be grounded in love. And he uses two metaphors here to drive home this point. The first one is a botanical metaphor. The idea of a plant, a bush, a tree being rooted, firm roots. When Judy and I uh, purchased our first home in Montana, this is, God, this is 20 years ago, I bet now. And uh, we were, uh, you know, an old home. And you know what goes with old homes is old landscape. I mean, everything we, we basically redid. And just outside the, the front porch was this old lilac bush. Folks, this lilac bush, I'm sure, had been there since day three of creation. It was from a long time. And we decided we needed to remove that. And I had just purchased a 1976 uh, four-wheel drive truck. Matter of fact, the same truck I'm driving today. And uh, I told Judy, I can get this plan out. There's no problem. 
I got a truck. I got a four-wheel drive truck. You know? It's one of those testosterone things, guys. And uh, so I pull up to the bush, and I hook a chain onto it. My neighbor across the street's helping me, and we hook it all up. And I think, yeah, I don't even need four-wheel drive for this. I'll just back up in two-wheel drive. Well, the tire spun. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll put it in four high and backed up, and they all four spun. And about this time, Judy was standing on the porch looking, and she, she gave me this, you know, kind of like, do you think you ought to maybe at least cut around the bottom of the tree and maybe cut a few roots? Honey, all we need is more power. So I put it in, I put it in four low and, uh, and I learned as a college student moving things that if you get speed behind anything, you can, you can, you can move refrigerators through doors that, uh, you don't have to take handles off. Speed will do it. So I put it in four low and man, I, I get some slack in the chain because you know, you want to get a run at it. And man, I took off. And co-wang, this great big loud bang rang out. And I noticed the bush was still there. <laughs> and the chain was still there. And it was intact. I looked at Judy and she just gave me one of these and turned around and went shaking her head. And I had uh, pulled my bumper off. It looked like a... <laughs> looked like one of those ramming rods, you know, in the ancient days mounted to the front of my truck. But folks, the point is that uh, that that tree was rooted. I mean, it was <laughs> it was grounded. It was not coming up. Now, now, also, Paul uses uh, that second picture is one of being grounded. I think the NIV has established, and, and this word was used in ancient times for describing a bolting down something, nailing down an, an idol so that the wind or a storm would not blow it over. And that's the idea that Paul wants us to get here. Is that Something is so rooted and grounded and established that no storm can knock us over. And notice that in both cases, whether it's rooted or grounded, the cause of their stability is what? It's love. It's love. As one commentator said, he said, Love is to be the soil in which their life is to be rooted. Love is to be the foundation on which their life is built. You know, when I first came to Christ, love was the most natural and normal thing to happen in my life. Why? Well, because I had the indwelling power of the Spirit of God residence in my heart. I started loving people that I used to hate. I started treating people with a different sense of who they were because the Spirit of God was permeating my life. Now, granted, there are days when we don't appropriate that power very well, do we? But it's there. It's incomprehensible. And Paul uses, uh, uh, for both of these words, rooted and grounded, he uses the perfect passive participle, which tells us that, that it's ongoing and that God is the one who does the work. So we don't have to go around wondering, boy, I've got to drum up more love. I've got to have more love. But, but God does it through us. Not only is this uh, foundation, uh, this love and foundation in verse uh, 17, but notice in 18 that he begins again with that little phrase, so that you may be able to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. The verb here that Paul uses to comprehend is to grasp, literally to hang on to, to, to possess, to wrap your arms around it, to seize it. The apostle is simply telling us that the love of Christ is so awesome. It surpasses knowledge. You can't even use geometric measurements to measure it. You've got to experience it. Intellect is not enough. We can teach on it. We can study it. 
But you've got to experience it. About three weeks ago, Ron Amandis and my youngest son and I, we went on a motorcycle ride. We, we hit some trails where I have a, a better understanding, appreciation for the term expert and technical, of which, neither which, I, I am a rider that is technical. I just get on and go. And we came to an area that uh, was a steep incline, and then right at the bottom was this creek. And now remember, we got a lot of snow this year. It had been raining that day. The water was high. And uh, both Ron and Jesse went down through it, and then they looked back at me, and I'm shaking my head thinking, fellas, we can get down and across, but when we come back, we've got to keep your speed up, because right as you come out of this creek, I mean, you've got an incline to climb, and it was muddy. And uh, I'm shaking my head no, and they're shaking their head yes, and... You know, it was another testosterone thing. It was like, I gotta do this, or they're gonna think I'm some kind of a wimp. So I go down there, and, and but, but what happened was, uh, I made it through, and, and I'm, I'm wet. My boots are filled full of water, and I'm, I'm wet from my hips down. On the way back, though, uh, we figured we had this thing ace because we did it once. Well, I was right behind Ron Amandus, and, uh, he, he goes barreling through this creek, and he doesn't see this huge boulder covered up by the white water <laughs> rolling over it. And, uh, and Ron hits this and his handlebars just spin. And man, he, I've never seen a guy fall that quick. I mean, gravity just took over. And uh, he is literally underwater. I mean, I mean, his motorcycle, the tank, the engine, and he gets up and he's okay. And, and, and I, but that's the idea. I said, Ron, you can ride with me any day. Man, I get more sermon illustrations out of riding with these guys. But See, we could have sat up there and we could have evaluated and said, well, it looks like that's about 30 feet across and we don't know how long that creek is, but boy, the water's running high, pretty deep. We could talk about it all day, but we had to experience it. And Ron really experienced it, you know. He got a full appreciation for the depth and the width and the length <laughs> and the breadth. Folks, you got to experience God's love. How does that happen? Well... Golly, I, I, I keep thinking I'm in Tijuana and I've got another hour with you folks. <laughs> I'm not sure who's in trouble, you or me here. <laughs> Chapter 2 tells us what we once were. We were transgressors. But boy, Christ invades our life. And we begin to experience that love, don't we? Uh, we begin to grow in our, our spiritual inner man. And as we yield to the Spirit's will, He has no other choice but to keep loving us and those that we we touch. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is what? The first one, love. The only way to live, folks, is to love. Well, this love leads to the last petition of Paul in verse 19b. So that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. I'm not sure what to say about this. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? I mean, I can understand the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling me. I can understand the Spirit of Christ settling down and taking up residence in me. But now Paul prays that the Almighty God of the universe, the God Creator, the God who fills it all, would fill you and fill me. John Stott, there's, there's a lot of ideas about this verse, but John Stott, I think, puts it best. He says that what Paul is praying for, getting at here, is that we might be filled with the fullness of God, His perfection, so that we shall become like Jesus. You see, that's God's purpose. That's His promise. Romans 8, 
29. For those God foreknew, for those God predestined, what did He predestine us to? To be conformed to the likeness of His Son. You see, Christ is the fullness of God, isn't He? And that's what you and I desire to be, like Christ, to have that fullness. David in Psalm 17 says this, I'll never be content, I'll never be satisfied until I awake in thy likeness, O God. That's why you're here this morning, isn't it? We are, in, we are filled with that incomprehensible love. And then Paul, I think because he's, you know, God, what a, what a great prayer. He, he wraps it up in verse 20 with this, this wonderful doxology. Now to him who is able, what is he able to do? To do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Beyond our wildest dreams, folks. Infinitely beyond. According to the power that works within us. As a church, we have this power. Don't you ever think that you don't have this power. It's there. And it's super abundantly exceeding all that we can imagine or dream. As the Old Testament writers wrote, God can cause us to mount up with wings as eagles. He can cause us to run and not be weary. He can cause us to walk and not faint. And when it's all said and done, folks, just so that you and I don't get real proud and puff our chests out, he tells us in verse 21 what the ultimate goal is, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. He wants to strengthen our inner man. He wants us to be rooted and grounded in love. He wants us to be filled with the fullness of God so that God gets the glory. Hallelujah to that. Bill, we better sing some more. So let me just exhort and encourage you in three quick, four quick ways. First of all, make this prayer of Paul's your prayer. Bend a knee. Ask that God would grant that your inner woman, your inner man would be strengthened. Two, drink in God's word deeply. Just don't gargle it. So that Christ may settle down and take up residence in your hearts. So that, three, you may be grounded and rooted in love. And finally, that you will be filled with the fullness of God doesn't do any good to know all this, but not appropriate it. Turn the key on. You need to move the will, too. Dr. J., I'll close with this. Dr. J. Wilbert Chapman, in one of his meetings, a man stood up to give a remarkable testimony. I'm going to read to you a quote. Uh, I got off the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder, and I said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you you recognize me? Do you know me? Throwing his arms around with tears, he said, Oh, my son, I've found you. I've found you. Hmm. A dime, he questioned. All I have is yours. All I have is yours. This man went on to tell the men were at that meeting. He said, for 18 years, he said, I'd... Been looking, I'm sorry, he said that uh, men think of this. I was a a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that he was worth. Don't ask your heavenly father for a dime when he's going to give you all the power and the resources of the universe. 
Don't live, folks, like a beggar on a pittance when the resources that he has for us is to live like kings and queens.